This is the story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, kingdom builder, healer. He is the King of glory. He is the resurrecting Savior. They expected a conqueror, but instead they got a servant, crucified and lifted high. And the marks on his hands left us marked for salvation. Good morning, Lake City. How are you guys doing today? So good to see you. I'm very happy uh, to see you here. Also, I just want to welcome you if you're watching online today. We are delighted that you are joining us that way as we talk about the king of our hearts. You know, one of the more amusing things for me as a pastor is uh, what people remember about my sermons after the fact. Uh, someone came up to me recently and said, hey, Jim, I like that story about that Waze navigation GPS app that you were talking about. In fact, he said, I, I used that all the way to Spokane and back to avoid all the police on my route the, recently. And I'm like, oh, no, that's not the point. OK, but I took that as a joke, but I still found it rather amusing. The fact is, oftentimes the things people do remember, at least what they comment to me about, are the stories within the sermon. And yet I don't think I should be surprising at all because there are over 60 stories of Jesus recorded for us in the Gospels. There's just something about story that is powerful. And Jesus was the greatest storyteller ever who ever lived. He loved to tell stories. He had a gift for taking something that he came across in life, like maybe a tree, and telling a story about it that people would never forget. And here in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells one of his best stories. It's the story of a sower who went out to sow one day. And by all accounts, this is one of the most important stories Jesus ever told. It's recorded for us in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, which is one indication of that. But even more significant is the claim that Jesus made that this parable would help others understand all of his parables. And so with that, I want to go ahead and read the parable with you and uh, get started into it that way. And we're going to do it a little different today. I'm going to have it up here on the screen. I'm going to read the odd-numbered verses. If you would please read the even-numbered verses. We'll, so we'll go back and forth and take turns. And uh, just listen, and I'll get us started. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain.
And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? All right, let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We've just read together the parable of the sower. And, uh, Lord, even though we have heard it, read it many, many times, uh, we need you to teach us and to open our eyes and our hearts to hear what you have for us today. And so we pray for that. God bless the teaching of your word today and our response to it in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we dig into this parable today, I want to say just a few things by way of introduction. And here's number one. This parable is the key to understanding all the parables. This this parable is the key to understanding the rest of them. So we have some 60 to 70 parables and stories that Jesus used throughout the four Gospels. So they were a very big part of his teaching ministry. And that also means it's important for us to understand how to interpret them. They were such a big part of it. And that's why I think it's important to pay attention to verse 13, where Jesus said this. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So essentially what Jesus is saying is this parable, if you understand this one, you will be able to understand the rest, all the stories that I tell. And when Jesus says, here's the key to understanding something, I think it's important for us to sit up and take notice of that. Number two, this marks a new phase of our Lord's ministry. So in the first three chapters of Mark's gospel, Jesus called people to come and follow him, to come and be his disciples. And he used miracles and he healed many people in order to strategically magnify his message. Eventually, Jesus selected the 12 apostles to join him and to be sort of his inner circle and he trained them to advance his ministry when he left. But as we come to chapter four today, Jesus begins this brand new phase of his ministry. You see, something happened in Mark three that marked a change, a transition. Mark three is a crucial turning point in Jesus' life and ministry. Do you remember what it was about Mark three, what we read there? In Mark three, Jesus healed a man with a deformed hand that was in the synagogue in Capernaum. And afterwards, the Jewish religious leaders began to meet and plot how to kill Jesus. Mark 3 also tells the story about the day that Jesus cast a demon out of a man. And the religious leaders made this statement. They said, he's possessed with Beelzebub, with the devil himself. And that's how he has the power to cast out demons. Well, Jesus responded by saying this. He said, you've crossed the line. You've committed the unpardonable sin. You see, they blasphemed against the Holy Spirit by 
witnessing firsthand the teaching and the miracles of Jesus the Messiah and choosing to harden their hearts against him and to reject him for who he was. I like the way Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost summarizes this crucial turning point. This is what he said. One's response to the person of Christ determines his eternal destiny. This incident then marked the great turning point in the life of Christ. From this point on to the cross, the nation is viewed in the Gospels as having rejected Christ as Messiah. Again, the rejection of the religious leaders in Mark 3 was a crucial turning point. And we need to understand that for Mark chapter 4 to make sense. To recognize the unpardonable sin was a defining moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. And how that was why, from this point on, Jesus relied on parables as his primary means of teaching the crowds. In fact, as we get down to later, not today, but later we'll get to Mark 4, 33 and 34, which says this. Jesus used many similar stories and illustrations to teach the people as much as they could understand. In fact, in his public ministry, he never taught without using parables. But afterward, when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything to them. So Mark 3, 4 is the transition point at which time Jesus changed his teaching method to parables. And it's very clear as we read the Gospels. Jesus only taught the crowds, the masses, from this point on in parables. So we're about a year and a half into the ministry of Christ at this point in the Gospel of Mark. And my sense is that his teaching in parables continues for a substantial period of time, probably all the way till his arrest and crucifixion. Next, I want to remind you about some principles for interpreting parables. And we typically talk about two big principles for that. But R.T. France, in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, says this. He said, a parable is like a political cartoon. So think about that. I, I made the decision not to show you any political cartoons. I've learned my lesson, okay? So, but, but this means that you have to come to a parable with a certain level of understanding, a certain set of givens before that thing is going to make sense. Political cartoons and parables have this in common. You need to understand the cultural background into which they were spoken to interpret what they mean. And we'll do that in just a minute. Listen, the problem is this. This parable sounds simple, and so we, think, we might think we have it pretty well under control and easily miss the significance of what Jesus is really saying here. So here's the two principles for interpretation of parables. Number one, parables normally answer a specific question. They answer a question. In other words, they're never spoken into a vacuum. In each instance that Jesus spoke a parable, he was explaining the answer to a question that they had or he was explaining a, about a problem that they were facing. And that means that when we try to understand what Jesus was teaching, it's our job to study the immediate context to discover what that question or problem was that he was responding to. In the case of the parable of the sower, I believe the question is this. 
Why do so many people reject the teaching, the truth that Jesus is giving out? That's what we're going to look for an answer to, that specific question. Here's the second principle. The the interpretation is typically one main truth. Just one main truth. So parables are a teaching device, but they have limitations. And one temptation we sometimes fall into when we come to a parable is trying to make every detail significant. But the safest approach to a parable is to look for one main truth. A parable answers one big question, and the answer to that is typically one main truth. For example, the parable of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18. The emphasis there is not on the character of the judge, but rather on the persistence of the widow. But if you focus on the unjust judge and try to make an additional point about that, you might conclude that God is unjust, which obviously is not what Jesus was teaching. Again, the interpretation of a parable is typically one main point or truth. All right, there's one more introductory thing that will help us interpret this parable, the parable of the sower. And that's what Jesus says about the purpose of the parables. We just read that in verses 10 to 13. So as we come to these verses, Mark is essentially allowing us to eavesdrop on a conversation between Jesus and his true disciples after telling the story. Okay, let's read that section again, beginning at verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So Jesus' explanation can be a little unsettling if we don't really understand what he was saying. And the reason is it sounds like he said, I don't want people to understand so that way I don't have to forgive. That's not what he was saying. But that's sort of our initial response to what he says. Okay? Rather, he was saying that the purpose of teaching in parables is to attract and inform true seekers while putting off adversaries. In other words, the parables achieve God's purpose for different groups of listeners at the same time. There were at least three groups of people listening to Jesus teach the parable of the sowers. There were his true disciples There was the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders who had rejected him. And then there were the masses of people, and some were truly seeking the truth, maybe others not so much. Some have compared teaching in parables to a quad-core computer. Teaching in parables was Jesus' way of multitasking. He could hit all the various audiences he was speaking to at one time. Then the key to understanding this particular parable is his quote from Isaiah chapter 6. Again, remember, this is not the beginning of his ministry nor the end of it, but he's about halfway through his three years of ministry on earth. And the crowds are growing exponentially by now, and some were trying to sort of push Jesus into their mold of what they thought the Messiah would be like. Some were even trying to make him king by force, 
And if you happen to watch episode three of The Chosen this week, then you'll kind of hear some of that conversation going on in the camp. Listen for that if you haven't. But the Jewish leaders had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And so Jesus needed a way to continue to reach and to instruct those who were sincerely in the crowd and seeking the truth, but at the same time to sort of protect himself and put up a wall between himself and those who were coming with wrong motives. Some sought Jesus to be healed by him or to get a free meal. Others wanted to sort of force him into becoming that one to overthrow the Romans. Jesus wasn't interested in either of those things. And at this point, he's sort of drawing a line in the sand in his ministry. And he does that by resorting to teaching in parables only with the crowds. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah explained some things, and Jesus uses a quote from Isaiah 6, so we need to understand what Isaiah was saying. And he was explaining why the Babylonian captivity was coming upon the nation of Israel. And he's saying, essentially, even if some of you do repent, God has determined that it's time for judgment to come upon the nation. That they would suffer greatly because of their hard-hearted disobedience toward God and toward his word. They'd failed to obey the word of God, and therefore they had failed to be fruitful for God. Instead, they had hard hearts, and they disobeyed, and they chose to worship idols. And Jesus was essentially saying, a similar time has now arrived in my day. And that time is at hand for the nation to experience judgment. Just like in Isaiah's day, because of your hard-heartedness, your rejection of me as the Messiah, judgment is at hand. And so Jesus taught in parables in order to conceal the truth from those whose hearts were hard and rejecting him, but at the same time to encourage true seekers to follow him and believe. All right, very long introduction. Let's get to the parable itself now, all right? And first, I want to consider the setting for this parable. The setting for this parable. The Bay, the Bay of Parables is a lovely little cove on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, where according to tradition, Jesus taught this parable to the multitudes. This little cove called the Cove of the Sower or the Bay of Parables is located just west of the town of Capernaum and just down the hill from the Mount of Beatitudes for those of you who have been there. So if you, let's go to the next picture. There is a picture of the same place from a water view and the hill right there is the Mount of Beatitudes and if you look carefully, you might even see some buildings there. That's the Mount of Beatitudes that perhaps if you've been to Israel, you've been in that location and you've read part of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. This cove that we're looking at there, water view, has remarkable acoustic properties and it would have been the ideal location to address a large crowd like we're reading about here in Mark. So let me read verses one and two again. And he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. 
And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, and we'll stop there. So the topography around that bay creates this natural amphitheater that Jesus apparently took advantage of. So here's an aerial view of that same bay, the Cove of the Sower. And according to tests that have been done in this very place by archaeologists and by sound engineers, a single person sitting in a boat anchored just offshore could be heard clearly by an audience seated on that hillside in that amphitheater of some five to 7,000 people. By the way, last week as I was reading this and studying this, I got excited about it, so I emailed the tour company that we normally use for our Holy Land tours, and I said, please add this spot to our itinerary next time. I want to go there and see it for myself and test out the acoustics. That would be so cool. Can't wait. Now, the traditional posture of teaching in the ancient Near East was sitting, sitting down, not standing as I'm doing, but sitting down. And since the crowd was very large in the thousands and people were thronging to Jesus and trying to touch him in order to experience his healing power, Jesus found it necessary to get into that boat, to push offshore, and to teach them from that position. Next, let's consider the sower. Because Jesus said in verse 3, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And in verse 14, Jesus explains what this meant. He says, the sower sows the word. So the sower sows the word of God. The question is, why is seed a good picture for God's word? There's a couple of reasons that I can think of. First, seed has life within itself. It's incredible how you can take a tiny little seed something that's kind of dried up and shriveled, and you can put it into the soil and you can water that, and a, a beautiful flower or a plant or even a tree can grow out of that one tiny little seed. And the reason is because a seed has life in it, right? Some of you told me after, or some people told me after the first service they've been planting seeds this very week, so maybe some of you have been doing that. So how many of you know that that's what happens when the word of God is sown into a person's heart, right? It produces amazing new life. It transforms a person into a new creation. And then seed is a good picture for God's word, secondly, because it multiplies, it, it grows so much, okay? One of the laws of the harvest is that you reap more than you sow. One seed, when planted, produces many more seeds, in other words. For example, a corn plant will grow a stalk of corn with at least one, sometimes more than one, ears of corn on the plant. And each ear of corn, I read this week, contains roughly 800 kernels on it, so 800 more seed. And so seed multiplies, just as the Word of God does. Okay? It gives exponential growth. And so the parable begins with this picture of someone who is sowing seed. And Jesus interprets it for us later on by telling us that that person is someone who sows the word of God. Of course, that includes Jesus. He's sowing God's word to them that day. Remember, the purpose of this parable is to answer the question, why do some people not accept the truth that Jesus is speaking? Why do they reject his truth? 
But we also see that the sower can be anyone who shares scriptures, anyone who sows God's word. It can be a teacher, it can be a preacher, it can be a missionary or a, a, an evangelist. It can include a parent or a friend. It includes all of us because all of us who know the Lord have the opportunity to share God's word with others. Now, in order to understand what Jesus means here, it's helpful to also understand the culture and what sowing meant to them in that day. Today, when a farmer goes to plant a field, he can take his big tractor, his four by four tractor, he can put, hook up a hydraulic corn planter, for example, behind him, and he can plant 16 or even 18 rows of corn at one time, simultaneously, very fast. But I promise you, that is not the way it was done in Jesus' day. Okay? That's not the picture he's painting. In Jesus' day, they took a bunch of seed and they would put it in a basket or even in a burlap bag, maybe hook it over their shoulder, and then they would walk along, reach in and grab a handful and just throw it out. They call it broadcasting seed. And they didn't plant weed or other grain crops in rows like we typically see today. And that's the picture of more what Jesus is trying to describe here. And they were very familiar with that. They got that because it was an agricultural society they all lived in. In fact, some have even suggested, some scholars who have commented on this passage said it's very likely that there was a farmer sowing seed on the hillside somewhere around them and that Jesus was using that as the picture and reference point for this parable. And that's not hard to believe since there was a lot of farming done around the Sea of Galilee, both then and today. And so Jesus begins, Behold, a sower went out to sow. Now when a farmer sowed his seed, that seed would go all over the place and if the wind happened to catch some of it, it would take it where you didn't want it to go. And they didn't cultivate the fields first in those times, so they would sow the seed. Sometimes I read that they would hire people called scratchers, and they would come along after the sower with an instrument to sort of scratch up the dirt and make holes so when it rained, the, the seed would fall down into the grooves and have a better chance of germinating. But the farmer would, would walk through his field, he would reach into the bag, and he would sling the seed out as he went along. He was sowing his seed. And that field might be bordered on one side by a fence row covered with weeds and briars, or there might be a walking path that goes alongside his field. And even if he was careful and tried to conserve his seed, which he would have done, some of it would inevitably land where it wouldn't be able to grow well. That's the picture that Jesus is painting for us. So we've talked about the seed and we've talked about the sower. That's really the easy part of the story. Now we get to the more difficult part. Because now Jesus talks about the different kinds of ground that the seed falls upon. And I've called this simply the soils. The soils. And here Jesus outlines for us four different responses that people have to the word of God. And let me just pause for a minute and say this. Every one of you hearing my voice today is going to be represented by one of these four soils that Jesus speaks about in this parable. 
Every one of us is here. Jesus is going to say that when the word of God is spoken and taught, there are different responses to it. And those reactions, those responses are like the different kinds of soil into which seed is sown by a farmer. And I'm going to go through them fairly quickly. I'm going to tell you what Jesus said and then how he explained it. But one of the reasons people love this parable is that it's self-interpreting. Jesus tells the parable, verses 3 to 9, and then Jesus interprets the parable beginning in verse 14. He tells us what it means. and That means we don't have to wonder how to unravel it. He explains it. So let's look at the first soil, and I'm going to call this a soil that represents a hardened heart. Let's consider the hardened heart, first of all. The Bible tells us that soil represents the heart. In Matthew 13, that's Matthew's record of this parable, he says this, he says what was sown in his heart. Luke 8, 12 says the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. So clearly the soils here that we're reading about represent our hearts. It represents our response to the word of God when we hear it. We'll come back to this, but it's very, very important, this matter of our hearts. In fact, in Proverbs 4, we read this. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Listen, every one of us is responsible for our own hearts. And God says it's important for us to guard or protect our hearts. Why? Because it influences everything else in our lives. And the first kind of heart that we can have, Jesus says, is the hardened heart or the calloused heart. Verse 4 again. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. So some seed ended up on the pathways that went between the fields or on the, beside the fields and the pathway was hardened. It's, it refers to the walkways around the edges of fields that had been beaten down by years of people's feet going over them and by animals' hooves. And of course, that would leave the seed vulnerable to the birds. That seed never stood a chance, right? It was snatched away by the birds before it had a chance to germinate. So what in the world does that mean? Well, listen to what Jesus said in verse 15. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So the seed is received. The word is heard. It might even make a momentary impression upon you. This might even be describing some listening to me today. You hear the word of God maybe in a sermon or from a friend or a podcast, something like that, but you don't respond to it and very quickly Satan comes along and steals it away. Luke adds this note in, in Luke 8:12. He wrote this. He said, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Now, we all know people like that. You might even be that person listening to me today. Maybe, in fact, your heart is sort of callous and the word of God is not able to penetrate it. But, by the way, 
Even a Christian can develop a callous, a sort of hard heart to God's word. One of the ways that happens is familiarity. Okay, familiarity can develop calluses even in a believer. It's not a good thing, obviously. Okay, Listen, beloved, protect your heart from becoming callous. But here, Luke says, Jesus is specifically talking about the unsaved who have a hardened heart so that they do not believe and are not saved. Now, the second group is given to us in Jesus' parable, beginning in verse 5. And this is what we might call the shallow heart. The shallow heart. And Jesus teaches this, beginning in verse 5. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root it withered away. So let's get this picture. The sower is sowing seed and some of it falls on rocky ground. So I used to think that what Jesus meant by rocky ground is sort of ground like we have here in the Northwest or in Pierce County. You know, with the big potato spud rocks that that we have around here. Okay, that's not the picture of what he's describing here. Israel is an extremely rocky country, but it's not the kind of rocks we have in our soil. It's more like a uh, a stone bed that is covered over with a thin layer of topsoil. And that's what he's talking about here. So when seed germinates, it might begin to grow, but the roots don't have enough soil to go down with any depth and to mature and to put out a root system and to really anchor the plant or get the nutrients and the moisture from the rain. And so that plant shows some initial promise, but it soon succumbs to the scorching heat and withers away. Now, you want to know what all of that means? Look over at verse 16. Jesus said this, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So Jesus says this is a person that has some immediate response, but they're affected by tribulation or persecution. In other words, they have a very shallow response. The word does not take up root in that person's heart. And so when trouble and suffering comes along or when criticism and persecution comes, it's evident that the gospel really did not germinate in his heart and therefore they fall away. Listen, Jesus is not saying that this is a person who was saved and then lost their salvation. This is a person he's describing who never was a Christian. They made a quick emotional response, but they fell away quick when things got tough. And I fear that there are actually many people in our churches in America today who are just like this. So we have the hardened heart and we have the shallow heart. And third, we have the crowded heart, the crowded heart. And I would venture a guess that most people in churches today who aren't Christians probably fit into this third group, the crowded heart. And here's how Jesus describes them in his parable, verse 7. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. 
So Jesus says, sometimes when you sow the seed, it's going to fall into an area where there's a bunch of thorns that are growing. Or you might call them weeds, okay? And what comes to mind when I think about weeds, when I read this and think about weeds, I think about growing up as a youngster in Portland. When I was in first grade, my dad had this thing where he would pay me to pick dandelions out of our yard. And I don't know if he was an early environmentalist and didn't want to use, you know, weed killer, but at any rate, in the summers, he would pay me to pick the dandelion the flowers in the yard, he'd pay me a penny for every dandelion I picked and brought to him. So my dad wasn't really that cheap. Our yard just had tons of dandelions in it. And so I made a pretty good living as a first grader picking dandelions. Plus, I'm old, so a little inflation going on here. And the idea was if I picked them when they were at that stage, then they wouldn't go to seed and fill up the rest of the yard with more dandelions. So here's a story you might want to remember and talk to me about later if you like remembering my stories, right? So anyway, when I was growing up in Portland, it just seemed like I could never get ahead of all the dandelion plants in the yard. And how many of you know that weeds grow faster than grass, right? You've seen that. And thorns grow faster than crops. In fact, for the picture here, you might think of something like Canadian thistles, that kind of weed or thorn. And Jesus is saying that sometimes when you sow seeds, it falls into soil that will be overcome by thorns. What are the thorns, you ask? Well, I'm glad you wondered because Jesus is going to explain that. Look at verse 18. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So Jesus tells us there are three things that act as thorns in a person's life. First of all is the cares of the world. Secondly is the deceitfulness of riches or the lie, you know, just a little bit more will make you happy, materialism. And then thirdly, he says it's the desire for other things or Luke says the the desire for the pleasures of life. So here are three things that will choke out the word of God in a person's life. They will keep you from becoming a Christian if you aren't one. And they will keep you from bearing fruit if you are a Christian. The crowded heart is what Jesus is talking about here. And so Jesus identified three kinds of people, three responses of a person's heart to God's word, the hardened heart, the shallow heart, and the crowded heart. And that brings us to the last soil and to the good news in this story because number four is the fruitful heart. And the fruitful heart is really the emphasis of our Lord's parable here. I want you to listen to his description again of this person in verse 8. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And then he explains it in verse 20. He says this, but those who were sown on the good soil are the ones who bear or hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Now this soil, this fourth soil, represents the person who truly becomes a Christian. Notice the response Jesus describes in verse 20. They hear it, 
All four groups heard it, but they hear it and they accept it. And that means he allows it a place in his heart. And it produces fruit. It bears fruit. And Jesus acknowledges that different Christians are going to bear differing amounts of fruit. Did you see that? Some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. But I want you to consider this. There is no such thing as zero-fold. Everybody who is truly a Christian produces some fruit. Listen, the emphasis in this parable is on the heart and on fruitfulness. The heart and fruitfulness. And really, the heart is the key to the whole thing. A few chapters from now, we're going to be in chapter 7, and Mark is is going to record that day that Jesus denounced the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, and he says this to them. He says, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Again, remember the question, the problem that Jesus is responding to. Why do so many people reject your teaching, Lord? Answer, because of the condition of their heart. Many heard Jesus teach, but their hearts were hard, and therefore they failed to believe and to act upon what they heard. And yet we see that Jesus came and he taught the people so that they would believe him and so they would obey him and so they would bear fruit. You see, the goal of the gospel isn't just escaping God's judgment. It's fruitfulness. That's the goal, fruitfulness. And so the issue is bearing fruit or not bearing fruit. Three of the four soils were unfruitful in this parable. And the difference between the four groups is their heart. Again, Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it determines the course of your life. Listen, friend, it really is all about our hearts. There's one other layer here, I think, for this inner circle of Jesus' disciples. I think he may have been saying one more thing that's related. I think he might have been saying to them, you know, crowds really are not the measure of success. Many will have this initial interest. They might respond sort of positively, outwardly, at least at first, but they won't endure, have an enduring faith. Again, remember, Jesus is preparing his disciples to send them out and to preach the gospel. And so he wanted them to know some things up front before sending them out. Many are going to be positive. They'll respond to what you say, but don't think that's a sign of success and don't expect them all to continue in the faith. It's fruitfulness. Fruitful lives is what Jesus is going for. Obedience and transformed lives. That is what he's looking for. That's the goal. All right, let's talk about where we go from here, some application of this parable. And the first one is this. I will guard my heart. I will guard my heart. You know, Jesus said this about the fourth group in the parable of the sower. These are the ones who not only hear the word of God, but they 
accept it. And that Greek word accept for accept means to acknowledge something as true. To receive something in a hospitable manner is another translation of that word. In other words, even if they don't, even if we don't understand it completely, we receive the truth of God's word and we give it a welcome place into our hearts. In fact, Jesus is going to say in the very next parable, he's going to say, to those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. But for those who are not listening, who don't have an open heart, in other words, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. It's a matter of our heart. It's an open heart to God and to the truth of his word. And so I want to ask you, beloved, listen. When you hear God's word, when you hear someone speaking to you about Jesus, is your heart open and receptive to that? Or is it a little more closed and resistant? Because God wants our hearts to stay open and to be tender to his truth. Next step, number two. I hope you'll be saying to yourself today, I'm going to keep sowing faithfully. I will sow faithfully. This one isn't on your notes if you're following there. I added this one late. But maybe you teach children or teach youth or you're a small group leader or some other Bible study leader, something like that. You teach God's word or maybe you're a parent or a grandparent. You see, really, we all have opportunities to sow God's word into the life of other people. Some more than others, but we all have opportunities. And what we need to remember is this. Our job is simply to sow the word and leave the results to God. It's easy sometimes to get discouraged about people who don't respond like we hope they will. Listen, that's not our responsibility. We're responsible to share God's word in a winsome way, but ultimately how they respond to it is on them. It's up to their hearts. We sow, but we leave the growth to God, as Paul said to the Corinthians. Next step three. I hope you're saying in your heart of hearts today, I will pursue fruitfulness in my life. My heart's desire is to be fruitful for God. Jesus reveals his truth to us so that we will hear it and obey it and bear fruit. Somebody once asked me the question, Pastor, I'm saved, but now what? Is this all there is? And the answer to that is a resounding no, of course not. The goal of salvation is not just to escape hell someday. God's goal for every one of his children is to bear fruit. I like the way Jesus put it in John 15. Jesus said, by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Friend, does that describe you? Are you bringing glory to God by bearing much fruit? Are you serving God with your life? Not to try to earn your way to get to heaven, but because you are saved, are you serving him and bearing fruit for his kingdom? Some Christians don't have a lot of interest in serving and bearing fruit. That's not a good place to be. In fact, that can even be an indication that you're one of the first three soils. 
God's goal for all of us who are saved isn't just to be saved, to get us to heaven, but it's to bear fruit for our Savior. A life of obedience and faithfulness and fruitfulness is what glorifies God. And so, beloved, I hope you'll take sort of a long, hard look here and sort of ask yourself, what am I really living for? Is this important to me? Bearing fruit for God. Finally, I want to say this. If you're unsaved, you don't know Jesus as your Savior yet, it's impossible for you to bear fruit that lasts. So the encouragement I want to give to you who aren't yet saved is to repent, to trust Jesus as your Savior, and to be saved. Okay? That's the place to begin. It's not to try harder to bear fruit. It's simply to receive God's forgiveness and let Him give you the gift of His Holy Spirit so He will bear fruit through you. I'll give you a chance to do that as we pray. So let's bow together at this time. Pray with me, please. Father God, we thank you for the power of your word and that you have sown it into our lives. We've heard your truth. We've responded to your truth in different ways. Lord, I pray that you would guard our hearts. Help us to guard our hearts. Be the king of our hearts. Help us to have open, receptive, tender hearts to your truth. I want to pray for anyone here who's not yet received Jesus as Savior. And friend, if that's you, I just invite you now in your heart of hearts. Just silently pray to the Lord something like this. Say, Father, I want your forgiveness. I want to be saved. I want to have my sins forgiven. Today I put my faith in Jesus and his death and resurrection to forgive me. And I thank you that he went to the cross for the forgiveness of my sin. I receive that gift today. And Lord, for those of us who have received Christ, I pray that you would help us to sow your truth faithfully to those in our lives. Help us to live lives that are fruitful, that bring glory to your name because we are faithfully and fruitfully serving you. Thank you, Lord, that you've not only saved us, but that you have called us and gifted us to serve you and to bear much fruit. And thank you also for the, uh, the recognition that someday you will reward us for that when we get to heaven. God, we love you and we thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.